The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we'll discuss the Ukrainian counterattack. Plus, one of the Telegraph's photographers on the front line, Simon Townsley, gives his response to those crying fake news to pictures of devastation in Ukraine. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in fate. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, I sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's day 28, and I'm joined by Dominic Nichols, The Telegraph's defence and security editor. Welcome, Dominic. What are the the latest updates from the front line? It's been very quiet overnight. uh, Shelling in uh, Kyiv and... um, uh, and across the crunchy country into uh, Kharkiv and down south into Mariupol. But generally no advances. The US um, Department of Defense put out a statement very recently. They're, they're, um, the SECDEF is flying to uh, a NATO meeting tomorrow in Brussels, so there's no, no formal briefing from the US DOD Department of Defense later today, but they have just put out a statement saying that there's been very, very little, little movement at all. Um, although they have said that uh, both sides, interestingly, both sides still have 90% of their combat power uh, available to them. Um, of course, there's more more than just numbers. Uh, it's what they can do with them. But no, not an awful, not a lot of movement, um, which has allowed the Ukrainian forces to uh, to push back in a in a number of areas, number of small but uh, significant areas that I think we're going to uh, talk a little bit more about uh, later on. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, let, let's start. So, just on the front page of the Daily Telegraph today, our headline is "Ukrainians Reca- Regain Key Territory in Fight Back." Let's go through these different places. So, starting with uh, Makarov, a key town in the west of west of Kiev. Can you talk a little bit about that? What happened there? As we know, for the last few weeks, Russia has been pushing down from the north, and there was that sixty-mile-long convoy that just sort of sat to the north north of Kiev for uh, for quite some. Uh, weeks actually uh, what they're trying to do is that they're, they're, they're coming down from the north from, from their bases in Belarus and they're trying to get around the west and the east side of Kiev uh, down to the south to encircle the city to then threaten it or bombard it or potentially uh, try and take the city although they've never never got anything like the troop density to be able to do that but sealing it off and and then slowly starving it as they have done with Mariupol um, it seemed to be the kind of tactic they were they were after. So they've they've, they've tried to push uh, on both sides. We saw a couple of weeks ago that big uh, attack from the from the east from Brovary, where there was that that column of thirty about thirty tanks and uh, armored vehicles, including a, a thermobaric launcher that uh, that got hit by uh, Ukrainian artillery uh, and pushed them back there. So just in the last in the last uh, day, there's been. Uh, significant fighting in Makariv, which is about 20 kilometres due west of of Kiev. So uh, that has been retaken. The Ukrainian flag is now flying over the town once again, and it and it just means that 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 um, flank uh, assault round to try and get round to the assault has been repulsed for now. So this this effort to try and encircle Kiev is still is still nowhere near where, where it should be. I mean, they, they've really not advanced significantly in um in three weeks so that's quite a 
quite an important town that they took. It's got one of the main roads both into into the capital and uh, and allowing further advance to the south. So to take that town was 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 quite significant. Um, and the Hostomel airfield that we've that's featured um, for the last few weeks, that's a little bit further to the north. That is still uh, there's still very heavy fighting around there, and it, and it changes hands quite quite regularly. But this this push this effort to push the Russians back from the northwest suburbs of Kiev seems to be bearing fruit. And there's also been some Ukrainian success uh, and significant fighting in the city of Izium uh, in the the east. Uh, Can you talk to us about that? Yes, Izium, it's uh, kind of halfway between Dnipro, which is on the uh, Dnipia River, and the the east of the country. So it's southeast of uh, Kharkiv. It's just on the uh, on the edge of the disputed territory, the kind of the Dom, the Donbass uh, area, so in, in the uh, in the sort of Luhansk part of the Donbass, um, the town of Izium is is just on the edge of that. And again, this is this is quite uh, quite significant because one of the aims that we that we think Russia are trying to do, uh, if their main effort is in the south to try and get that land corridor from Crimea through to through to Russia, they also want to encircle. Ukraine's forces in the Donbass, which, um, apart from those defending uh, Kiev itself, seem to be the the, the better trained and um, the better equipped units of the Ukrainian forces. So if they're in the Donbass and Russia is able to cut them off, then again, it can just slowly wear them down. So to do that, they've obviously got the separatist republics themselves. And you've got the hard border of Russia, but they need to they need to cut off that that western flank. Uh, and Izium sat right in the right in the middle of that. So to, to not be able to take that and for, for Ukraine to still hold it, it then allows them to not only operate from there and, and push out, but, but enables them to resupply from the west of the country into that, into that city. So again, quite a, quite a significant um, town, may only be a fairly small town itself, but it, but it means a lot. It means that, you, that Russia find it, are finding it incredibly difficult to encircle the Donbass to, to squeeze and, um, and wear down the Ukrainian forces there. And there's one more uh, place I think we should talk about quickly before moving on to the tactics themselves. Uh, that's Mykolaiv, the uh, city in between Kherson and Odessa. And there's been some, there's been some Ukrainian success there as well. Yeah, so, so south coast, um, you've got Crimea. And just the north of that, you've got uh, Mariupol, which is, which is being bombarded. Uh, just to the, to the northwest, uh, if you come from Crimea and you onto the mainland of Ukraine, just to the north, northwest is the city of Kherson, which was the first city to, to fall to Russia. Um, just west of that is uh, Mykolaiv, which is contested. And uh, so th- this is, is significant because it's west of the Dnieper River. Um, and it's on the road to Odessa, so you've got to get through Mykolaiv if you want. If Russia wants to uh, try and uh, try and take the entire south of the country and that all important port city of Odessa, um, so they could try and bypass Mykolaiv, but but that's that then pushes them quite far quite far north, and they they, they leave themselves open to be um, hit in in the sort of logistic columns that follow up towards the back, which the Ukrainians were showing themselves to be very adept at um, at doing. So Mykolaiv um, needs to be taken, basically, if they want to move west into Odessa. And that, that again, has seen seen some pushback from, from the Ukrainians, and, and they're gaining ground there. So uh, again, it's a, a thir- the third significant sort of area of um, counterattack for Ukrainian forces. 
Thanks very much, Tom. So uh, just to say, if you're listening, thank you very much. If you've got questions about the Ukrainian counterattack or about the war, do um, reply to the reply to the tweet em- embedded in the space or DM either Dom or myself. Um, Dom, when we talk about the, um, the Ukrainian counterattack, uh, what, what are their tactics and why are they successful? Well, their, their tactics have been to not try and meet the point of Russian strength so there's no point going toe to toe with a with a T72 it's it, you know, it's an old tank but it's it's pretty potent it can can do a lot of damage and of course i, I mentioned the numbers earlier on the US DOD uh, department of defense guy saying that 90% of the combat power is still available so you you don't want to get into that numbers game so what ukraine have been very good at is almost having the having the the courage and the confidence to allow that 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 first that first, the tip of the spear, if you like, the, the, the hard armoured elements to go past them and then to hit them from behind, to hit the logistic convoys. Because these things obviously need fuel, they need ammunition, the, the people inside them need water and rations and all the rest of it. So if you attack that element of it, then the actual tanks themselves are, are very vulnerable. Plus, of course, um, Russia still hasn't gained air supremacy and it's only able to uh, enact air su- superiority i.e. control small blobs of the air for limited amounts of time, very rarely. And they're mostly conducting their actions now at night because they, they, they are having such little success during the day. So these these tactics of the Ukrainians to, to go for the logistic convoys and then when the tanks have run out of fuel and, and, are, and are sitting there, as we've seen these, these columns, are just, uh, are just falling prey to these very, very mobile, very nimble, low-level infantry tactics, uh, these wolf packs that are going around with the anti-tank weapons supplied um, by Western countries, uh, and, are, and, are, and are picking off these, uh, the tanks and the other armoured vehicles because they are, they are left vulnerable if they're not able to move and are not protected from the, from the air. Um, I mean, Russia are using a lot of they're using a lot of artillery to to pound cities and try and weaken the civilian uh, resolve. That's one way of using artillery. The other way of of using their fires is to, is to is to do it in coordination with ground manoeuvre. And there is no point in trying to manoeuvre on the ground without having artillery fire and other and other other fires as part of that as part of that effort. And equally, there's no point in just firing artillery into into uh, military areas. If you're not going to try and exploit it from the ground, so so not being able to link up those two arms just just leaves the the, the tanks and other other the BMPs and what have you, the armoured personnel carriers, infantry fighting vehicles, vulnerable to being being picked off by the Ukrainian wolf packs. So we've spoken about. I mean, you've mentioned this before on this podcast uh, about the lack of coordination between the different arms of the Russian military. It, it doesn't seem, from what you're saying, it doesn't seem like this has changed much um, th- through this war. Why do you think that is? What what's going wrong? Well, far be it for me to to suggest <laughs> it, would, it would all all be better if only they'd listen to only they'd listen to Dom. But I mean, we had a conversation on on Twitter last December when I asked the question, "Who is the operational commander here?" I said, "If Russia are, are going to invade, um, then by December last year, when there were a huge number of forces built up on the on the border, they would have oh, well." they should have picked an overall operational commander there should have been one one person which in the you know, russian system is more than likely to be a man so there'd be one one bloke in overall command of the entire theater who could command all assets army navy air force cyber space information the whole the whole panoply of, of military uh tools 
And that doesn't seem to be the case. So the, the different military districts of Russia have supplied personnel and equipment for this fight, and they seem to be fighting their own wars. There seems to be a different war for the capital, Kiev, a different war in the east around Kharkiv and Chernihiv, um, different war in the Donbass, and a different war in the south. And they're not joined up. Uh, Ukraine is a vast country, so they are splitting resources. And when you have to overlay on top of that a requirement for an air force, for example, or or satellite time and availability to to, to provide you with intelligence as to you know, where the Ukrainians are, then all these competing interests, it, it just dilutes the force. Now, if there'd been one overall commander who'd been able to um, veer and haul priorities as as events on the ground change and um, and uh, you, you need to adjust your plan the famous military maxim no plan survives contact with the enemy i mean you've always got to change your plan even you, know, if you have a great idea but it's it's never going to never going to last for very long but they don't seem to have been able to do that they're just fighting these individual wars the air force is not able to supply in any in any great numbers any of this and it's all just a little bit diluted so it's it's extraordinary. There, there either is no overall operational commander, or or it needs to be sacked. I think that goes into something else we've talked about before, but it'd be good to bring back again um, about Russian kit. Um, I mean, we saw a report on the Telegraph today that um, some Russian soldiers are reportedly suffering from frostbite. Um, they're taking Ukrainian army issued boots because their own uh, the, the quality of their own is, is isn't as good. Um, are we seeing more evidence then of, of, of the lack of preparation? And, and and I know you wanted to talk a little bit about um, their about their sort of high high tech kit that that we've been talking about. Yes, we'll come on to the high tech kit in just in just a moment. But these reports of of frostbite and lack of tents and um, uh, and Russian soldiers taking Ukrainian boots and what have you. This this came from a couple of sources. Firstly, it was a uh, an alleged intercepted phone call from um, from Russian troops to uh, soldiers to, to commanders. You got to take that with a pinch of salt, of course. Um, we don't we don't know. We haven't had that verified. It does seem accurate with what what else is being reported, and that was also re- repeated in last night's U.S. Department of Defense briefing, saying that. Um, they there were um, troop numbers were being depleted through through basics such as frostbite. I mean, you you would have thought of all the armies in the world, uh, Russia should should be aware of frostbite in you know, fighting in cold conditions. Um, but yeah, there we go. And the, this idea of of taking Ukrainian combat boots. I mean, the British did that from the Argentines in, in the Falklands War. The British boots were were pretty terrible back then, and they were taking boots off. Um, uh, dead and wounded uh, you know, prisoners, Argentine prisoners. So, yeah, there, there's a historical example of this. You, 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 you can't. The clues are there. You can go read the books and find out uh, about these things. So, it's, it's it's amazing that it's happening again in uh, in 2022. But it does seem like uh, a lack of morale and a lack of um, basic supplies, because the priority seems to be for Russia at the moment to get the artillery, get the shells, get the ammunition up front, get the artillery up there, so they can continue their their um, campaign of, of hitting civilian areas and, and just trying to wear down the Ukrainians from airborne fires. But that's prioritising artillery. And so what they're not getting food, they're not getting water, they're not getting warm kit, they're not getting tents and, and all the rest of it. So they, they do seem to be um, in a fairly poor state. Uh, and of course, they're working on external lines of communication. So what that means is that, that they've got all their, their firm base back in Belarus and back in Russia proper, uh, and they're having to send everything forward, whereas 
Ukraine, of course, is working on internal lines of communication. So they've got all their stuff sort of close to hand and, and behind them. So if they have to have to uh, withdraw, they are withdrawing back into an area of 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 relative strength in with for materiel. They're falling back to their supply lines. So they are um, not overextending themselves. They they can rely on the the majority of the population to, to look after them uh, or to at least give them shelter, give them food, what have you. Russia can't do that. So so Russia's really out on a limb here and it seems to be having having quite an effect on the on the fighting capability of the of the individual soldiers. And I think, um, yeah, let, let's go on and talk about the, the high-level kit. I mean, there's been lots of stories of these um, sort of hypersonic missiles and so on, and I know you wanted to talk a little bit about, about the reality behind this. This came uh, over the weekend, basically. There were two, two stories. We, first of all, we heard that um, Russia had fired its, its Kherson, which means dagger, um, hypersonic uh, missile, um, Sorry, I've got the name wrong. I've just said Kazan. That's the city. Apologies, I've got the name wrong. But the the dagger hypersonic missile. Hypersonic missile is is a missile that travels over Mach five, so it can do two things. Firstly, it's just going so fast that it's got so much kinetic power that when it hits something, it does a huge amount of damage. And of course, it's full of explosive as well. But secondly, the thing about hypersonic missiles is that they can they can fly. So a normal a normal ballistic missile goes up in the air, and then it's it's basically just physics so you can work out where it's going to come down you have your your big radars that can see intercontinental ballistic missiles um, coming uh, re-entering uh, atmosphere you can work out where it's going to land and therefore work out where it's where it's been launched from so it's, it's different with hypersonic missiles because if they can effectively um, glide or, or fly they not only can conceal their approach but also they don't they don't just follow where physics is going to take them so you don't you don't know where where they're launched from and because they they the curvature of the earth you see them so late um you have very very little time to react so hypersonic missiles is the sort of the future if you like of, of you know, it's the next generation of missile technology and everyone's um getting very energized about trying to develop these things um, so i'm not taking away from the from the strike that happened on on saturday of a uh, an underground ukrainian weapons storage site it seemed to be a uh, an accurate hit and it did it and it depleted that um that site what i would just point out though is that that missile is basically a modified iskander short range ballistic missile so so pretty capable but it's not it's not star wars and it was launched a lot of the heavy lifting literally the heavy lifting and getting it up to speed was done by the um the russian air force plane that, that carried it and from which it was launched so i just wanted to to, to counter this idea that oh my god Russia's come out with this amazing new weapon uh, how can it be anything but complete defeat for for Ukraine I mean we've got to be a little bit careful and, and look, look a little bit behind the behind the headlines here and then the second thing I'd point out is that that Russia released some footage uh, again over the weekend of them firing the thermobaric launcher and uh, again long long range uh, artillery fire thermobaric weapons pretty horrendous I mean, use the oxygen in the air to make the explosive force a lot more powerful it can uh it can blast buildings apart and and cave uh, complexes and, and it's it's horrific what it does on to the human body so it's all it's terrible we look at thermobaric weapons and we think this is this is um absolutely horrendous and they are i'm not not trying to diminish the the potency of the weapon but i just make the point and i made this point in our in our daily dispatches newsletter um 
it, it just a, if please if you if you wish to telegraph does a daily daily newsletter it's out, out at about 5 5 p.m. london time um just a couple of thoughts from the uh from from the war and i made this point um in yesterday's newsletter so we see the the thermobaric weapons and we see the hypersonic missile they're all long range and that russia's showing us this stuff this long range stuff for a reason and the reason is because they they can't get in close range they can't get close to firstly be more accurate with their weapons or to provide any kind of close air support to their ground troops because they're getting whacked i mean the the, the ukrainian air force is still is still fighting um soldiers on the ground have got anti-air weapons and the russian air force are very very nervous about operating certainly in daylight but but nervous about operating at all and they're extremely nervous about getting close to the fight so I just caution when we see these amazing new missiles and thermobaric launchers and all the rest of it, just ask yourself why they're showing us all this stuff and why we're being told, look at this long range missile and look at these long range artillery. It's because they can't get in close. They can't get in the short range because of the effect the Ukraine, uh, Ukrainian forces are having. Thanks, Tom. Um Despite the good news for the Ukrainian armed forces, there are some signs think things aren't going as well. Uh, Vadim Prostyko told Sky News that the Ukrainian army are running out of, of weaponry. Um, I wonder if you talk a little bit about some of the limitations they're finding. Well, it, it does come back to that numbers game. And you're right, the um, Ukraine's ambassador here in London did say that they're, they're running out of numbers. Um, President Zelensky said they, they're going through a, a week's worth of kit in 20 hours. I mean, this is just simply unsustainable. Uh, we've talked at length in in these uh, in these potties and spaces about the western supply lines um the, the the or the supply lines from from the west through through the neighboring countries and uh, and the effort of russia to try and find these supply lines and stop them and just stop them getting into the country i mean you should notice yesterday poland expelled 45 russian diplomats um thought to be up to no good and and uh, this is on the back of um other diplomats that have been expelled last week, I think from Slovakia, uh, and we just we we were chatting about that. We we wondered if the if these are the people who are out looking for these routes, trying to trying to see where the kit's coming in from, and then letting their colleagues know in in Western Ukraine that there's more stuff on the way for them to uh, for them to go and have a go at. So it it is largely a numbers game. We've said before uh, this is a race between. Um, the West to get Kit in there and Putin trying to so smash the civilian population that the, there's such pressure on Zelensky and the Ukrainian leadership to, to try and stop the war, sue for peace. Um, so it, it does come down to numbers. There's amazingly dogged resistance being put up by Ukrainian forces. But, um, you know, the, these missiles are, uh, they, they don't just appear. Um, and, uh, and they are finite in number. Britain said it supplied 4,000 N-laws, the next generation light, light anti-tank weapon, um, which, which will be depleted very, very quickly. So it, it's, these, these stories of counterattacks are, are good, but we should, um, we should just caution that, that it's, all, it's having an effect. We're by no, nowhere near um, the end of this thing yet. And before we ask the final question about what people should look for in the days ahead, I want to just ask you quickly, um, there's been... Quite a few stories now um, that the the US thinks that Putin is considering a chemical or a biological strike. Uh, there are suggestions today that it would be chlorine, chlorine gas. Um, 
could you talk a little bit about what what that means? How how does it how does chlorine gas actually work? And do we have any clearer sense of how the West would react? Well, chlorine is an industrial chemical. I mean, there there are thousands and thousands of tons of um, industrially produced chlorine in Ukraine for perfectly legitimate purposes. This is one of the reasons why Russia has used chlorine gas. We've seen it before in in Syria um, and uh, and thought to be elsewhere in Chechnya, but certainly in Syria. Um, because it's deniable, you know, it's it's a it's, it has civilian applications, so they can they can say, oh, you know, it wasn't, wasn't us, it was it was it was either them or or somebody destroyed a, an industrial factory or what have you. But chlorine gas is um, uh, it, it it can be very well, it, I mean, it can be deadly. Clearly, um, they use it because it's uh, firstly deniable. Secondly, it's heavier than air, so it will sink down into basements and um, into low lying areas. And of course, what's in the basements? Well, that's where civilians are hiding so it's a it's a it's a horrific weapon to use um it, it is reasonably easy to defend against it can burn so so you need to get it off your skin and get rid of any clothing that's contaminated with it but largely it doesn't doesn't get into the uh, into the body through the skin it has to be inhaled so covering covering the nose and mouth with a with a rag and uh, uh, i'm sorry it's, it's so so close to breakfast, um, but uh, a urine-soaked rag is, sh- is shown to be very, very effective at um, at repelling chlorine. So there are there are certain things that civilians can do. Military people should be well protected against this with with their respirators and their and their generally better clothing. But there is there are things that civilians can do. But of course they don't they don't really know it's happening. I mean, the, until you start seeing this stuff, and generally after a strike, there's dust and smoke and God knows what else. So you don't really know and, until you're suffering the effects of chlorine gas that, that you're under attack. So they, they, they are brutal weapons. Um, and uh, and like I say, d- deniable. But uh, whether the, the West would um, would be so bold as to to say that it's a red line i think that i think it's notable that they haven't yet obama made the big big mistake in syria saying that the use of chemical weapons would be a red line and then they use chemical weapons and he did nothing about it um and that that lesson was was taken on board by assad and russia so the west now have been have been very uh very cautious about ascribing any cost to these things so western officials said in a brief last night that we shouldn't see the war at the moment of being um, guns and bullets and bombs and artillery and air power. Oh, and then there's a line and we go into chemical and biological. It's a continuum. And there is, there's, there's, we have escalated or there has been escalation throughout this war so far into what we see now. And look at the devastation in Mariupol and look at uh, civilian areas being bombarded. Uh, I mean, that is not normal warfare. These are war crimes. So we shouldn't see... That we're going to, there's going to be some massive defining moment after which chemical weapons are used. They could very easily be used now. And equally, the West do not want to box themselves into a corner by saying, unless you do this, um, or we're only going to act if, if, you, if you do that, if you use chemical weapons, that's when we'll, we'll really pull out the big guns. Um, so they're not going to do that because, because that would then make them a hostage to fortune as they, as they were in Syria in 2012. Um, but also they want to make the point that that, that, that doesn't mean... You know, we shouldn't we shouldn't accept it as normal what's happening at the moment this is horrendous and it's and it's a massive escalation um and so we shouldn't we shouldn't just accept that that what we've got at the moment is the best of it
And for all of our listeners, what should we be looking out for in the next few days across Ukraine? Well, it shouldn't be any news that the Russian advance has completely stalled. Um, And I don't I'm very nervous about uh, President Biden's talk of chemical weapons because the intelligence communities have generally been pretty much on the ball on this. They've called it. Uh, they called the invasion and they got most of the intelligence right. And what they've done is they've uh, they've worked out a way of getting very sensitive information into the public domain in order to kind of wrest the initiative from Russia. So we've seen some very sensitive information uh, in the press. Um, we we the press are briefed regularly by um, Western officials. There's the, uh, the vernacular that we are asked to use. Um, and I... I you know, you, sh- you should take it from trusted sources. Take your news from trusted sources. Check everything. Mistakes will be made, but 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 please do um, check everything and and go to those trusted sources rather than just the the Twitterati. Um, but they've called it right so far. So Biden's use of this of this language makes me makes me wonder if they've seen something that they've not yet told us and is not yet in the in the open um, open forum that there might be an attack coming up. Now, it's Biden speaking in interview. This wasn't a briefing from the US intelligence community or any any Western defense community. Um, But I just, for him to actually raise it, I'm I'm very, very nervous. The attack's not going well. Um, Putin is increasingly isolated. Sanctions are beginning to bite. Um, I mean, sanctions are big and small. The the disgruntlement from the... um, from young young people in, in Russian society because they've lost Instagram and uh, you know, McDonald's and all the rest of it, which we shouldn't we shouldn't make light of. I mean, this is this is part and parcel of us, what we consider normal. So they've they've lost that. They are they are unhappy. Putin knows this, and um, you know Biden said his back's against the wall, and that's that's not a good place to put a put a person with chemical, biological, and nuclear weapons. Thank you, Dom. Earlier this week, you may have seen the upsetting and extraordinary photos in the Telegraph from the Children's Hospital in Zaporizhia in Ukraine. The photographer there was Simon Townsley. My colleague, Sophie Coe, managed to grab a few minutes with him to talk about what it's like capturing images of conflict. And just a warning to listeners, parts of this conversation describe scenes of injury that some might find distressing. Can you describe to us where you are right now and what your days are looking like at the moment? Sure. Well, at the moment, we are based in Dnipro, which is over towards the east of Ukraine, about 500 miles from Lviv. It's quite a good location to be in. It allows us to move down further south towards Mariupol without getting caught up in anything that goes on down there. So um, that is an area of concern at the moment. If we're lucky, we start the day with breakfast. So because there's a curfew here, the staff can't get into the hotel early enough to start breakfast before 8.30, and that does not always work for us. So sometimes we have to start before breakfast, in which case we hit the road and we generally stop at the first place that we can find fuel to top the tank up. You have to keep the tanks topped up because there are regional shortages of fuel. And... That gives us an opportunity to buy some snacks for the car, then drive to wherever we think the story is for that day. And we've usually determined that the night before. So we live 
pretty much from day to day as to where we're going to locate ourselves. Sometimes, you know, from hour to hour, depending on reacting to whatever goes on. And the distances in this country are phenomenal. So uh, to give you an example, when we do finally pull out of this area, uh, it's going to take us about 36 hours to get out to Warsaw because we have to drive the whole way and the roads are so congested with refugees fleeing that you can be caught up in tailbacks for hours and hours and hours um, going and, and, and going through checkpoints. So, so there are a lot of checkpoints you have to contend with. Um, and sometimes they're friendly and sometimes they're aggressive and sometimes they keep you for a while and go through the car and sometimes they ask you whether you've got weapons and occasionally um, they offer um, us sweets. It, it's really unpredictable. I mean, everything about photographing in these situations is entirely unpredictable. Yeah, I mean, you're taking risks at every turn. Keeping that risk in mind, I guess, what do you see as the role of a photojournalist during times of war? Well, I think the role of the photographer is to identify and then capture images that give you a sense of the reality of what's going on. That can happen in a couple of ways. It can either happen because... You happen to there happens to be an immediacy about a situation that you come across, perhaps somewhere that's just been attacked, and you go in there and you record everything you see around you. The other way is that you might say, well, we need to look at what is happening with refugees here. Why don't we tell that story by visiting um, the the children's intensive care unit and and seeing the children who have perhaps been evacuated from? Well, in this case, we're looking at Mariupol, so. And, and so we've done that. And then telling the stories and recording what we see um, in those situations with those kids and their relatives. And so so you're either giving immediacy or depth. Totally. And going back to that, the hospital you mentioned that you visited the other day, can you give us a sense of what it was like firstly in that hospital and the more details about the people that you met there? We'd made some phone calls the night before. Some of the hospitals are reluctant to take you in and others are very welcoming. And these people were very welcoming. And they want to show the horror of the war and what is happening to these kids who they are looking after. And we arrived early and there was a French television crew there already. Um, And we said, you go first. While they went... We spoke to the grandmother of one of the children who was um, very severely injured. I mean, she had lost her leg and she'd uh, her shoulder was shattered and she was deaf profoundly from the blast. We were fortunate, really, in that um, because we let the French TV crew go in first, it gave us much more of an opportunity to get into the story in more depth. And so we spoke to this woman who was just beyond despairing of her beautiful 15-year-old granddaughter who had been mutilated um, purely because she was in the wrong place. And there was no reason for that to happen. So she became more and more emotional and more and more upset as we spoke to her in the corridor. And she was very comfortable with me photographing her. And I was less comfortable photographing her than she was being photographed. And then while we were talking to her, I glanced over the shoulder uh, of one of the doctors, and there was a boy and a woman sitting down 
and the woman was holding the boy's hand. So I photographed them, and I found out that that is the 15-year-old Marsha's boyfriend, Alexei, being comforted by one of the psychologists at the hospital who's kind of helping to support the family and to support him. That was the way into the story for us. So it was already very emotional. And then the um, French crew left and the doctor said, well, come with me. And so we were led into a room with uh, three beds in it and each bed had a child in. And I immediately started photographing each child in turn. It was very distressing because they were very... I mean, the first girl I photographed, um, Melina, was very distressed. She was ventilated because she'd been severely injured. Somebody had, she'd been shot in the face and consequently, uh, I think it had damaged her windpipe and so she'd been ventilated. But the sedation was wearing off and so she was kind of coming into consciousness, which was very difficult to watch. And... um, and, and she opened her eyes and, you know, that was um, an awful thing to see. You know, you know, people who are ventilators are supposed to be kept um, pretty unconscious. You, you really don't want to be conscious for that. Um, and then I went to see Marsha, who was in the bed diagonally opposite, and I tried to talk to Marsha, but she was quite heavily sedated as well, although she did communicate with me. And she let me photograph her. And we had, uh, so in order to photograph Masha, we had to ask Masha if we could pull the sheet back gently to one side and see her injury, which is why we were there. And so she let us do that. And then I said, could I see your hand as well? And even though it really hurt her, she um, rearranged her hand so the sheet was beneath her hand. I don't know if this makes any sense, and I guess you have to see the image to see what I've done, but um, it was very important to see as much of the person, the girl that she was, not just some lump underneath a um, a sheet, but to see the details of this child's um, 15-year-old's now broken um, body. I asked her to look at me, and she did. And then we'd been asked whether we wanted to come in and visit a boy who was very distressed, and we said, I said, yes, we would visit him, but we wouldn't be asking any questions around him. But in the end, his father said he was too distressed for that, so we said that's fine, and that is because he had seen his mother burned to death in the car, which was hit by shelling as they escaped. So, you know, that is um, something I would have photographed and I'm really pleased I didn't have to. Yeah, completely. And I know that the piece that went alongside these amazing, heartbreaking photos included the line that the Russians are saying that these kind of photos of injured children are fake. How does it make you feel hearing them say such things? Yes, yeah, so Ben Farmer was interviewing uh, one of the doctors there while I was photographing, and I could hear this while I was taking pictures of Masha and Melina in particular, and I was thinking, 
how would you fake this? <laughs> I mean, how, how, you know, maybe you could with an adult put makeup on them and take it. But I mean, how could you fake this kind of level of destruction? I mean, how could you, you know, it's just breathtaking. And it just goes to show how important it is to get your news from a reliable news source and not social media. Because, I mean, there's no, it just doesn't make any sense at all. And I so the doctor that we interviewed said, look, um, I share these images with my family in Russia. And they say these images are from a different conflict. So, you know, if people don't want to believe it, they simply won't believe it. And, you know, if it's an inconvenient truth, then they'll just call it a lie. So I was very angry when I heard it while I was taking pictures of a girl struggling to breathe. It just, yeah, well, let me tell you, it's all real. And I'm very happy to meet anybody and show them what I shot and, you know, go through it all. And you've spoken also to a lot of refugees who are who are fleeing and and who are leaving Ukraine. Can you tell us more about the what they're saying to you and the um, the emotions that are running are going through their brains? I guess. I I'm we've just come back. I got back about um, twenty minutes ago and filed some more photographs of refugees who have fled Mariupol and. Um, we drove down to meet some more people and everybody's story is different and everybody's story is shocking, equally shocking. And, you know, I've spent days talking to refugees and days photographing them and, you know, I just I keep thinking, well, I must have heard it all now. I mean, I must have, I can't be shocked again and, and I'm always shocked. And I'm always distressed at the tiniest little things, you know, that, you know, a woman, I we've serialised Olga's diaries and Olga showed me some video of them going into their apartment, which had been pretty heavily hit, and walking around the apartment videoing all their beautiful little things that meant something to them, just showered in glass. You know, the children's toys sort of, covered in debris and all their special things ripped off the walls and an entirely unlivable house. And then, you know, the next day it just burnt down because it was um, shelled again and um, the entire apartment block caught fire. And so they left with nothing. And But these tiny little parts of, you know, she said, oh, um, we were in there for three weeks under siege. And one day I went out to give my daughter a little bit of exercise and we went to the playground and she fell off the swing and cut her head open and the struggle that they had i mean normally if your child falls over and cuts themselves you just bathe their wounds and you cuddle them up and put them in front of tv and give them a hot drink and she couldn't do any of those things she didn't have any clean water to wash there was nothing hot to heat up you know there was so Every tiny little part of your life as you know it changes. When I talk to people and I photograph them and at the end of spending time with them, I th- I want to say, and I have to stop myself saying, everything's going to be okay, you know, everything will work out. Because I don't know that. I don't know what's going to happen. And I'd like to be able to say something reassuring or encouraging, but I'm slightly at a loss. So... 
anyway, that was quite a long answer. <laughs> no, it was completely fascinating and equally heartbreaking. And the people we were away from refugees, you must have spoken to people as well that are staying. What what reasons do they give you for for staying? Whether whether they actually can, or I'm sure some of them can't leave. Um, but what what do they say to you about that? Well, some want to stay because their husbands have to stay and the men can't leave. Some want to stay because they've got elderly relatives and they just can't transport them. Some need to stay because um, of relationships with sick relatives who they have to look after. There's uh, one woman who was really torn because her husband's got to stay, but her son is 17, and when he turns 18, he'll have to stay. So does she stay with her husband here? Or does she get out while she's still allowed to get her son out? And, you know, to complicate it, their daughter needs um, particular treatment for um, an issue she's got with her kidneys. And so they're really worried about being able to kind of deal with that on the journey and will they get the medication that they need. So maybe they won't, in which case they shouldn't leave because they can get access to it here. So, you know, every single life has got these massive contradictions and problems for most people. Yeah, it's the same kind of issues of logistics, which you think wouldn't come into such a tragedy, but actually do as people kind of navigate their daily lives. My next, my next question moves more towards your situation. What, what are the biggest challenges for you as a photojournalist? You've mentioned the difficulty of parting with people um, and trying to offer some sort of consolation is is that the biggest the hardest thing or is it physically the risks that you're um, putting yourself under I'm not sure um, the risks are really a factor here for me um, at the moment I think the situation is broadly fairly stable unless you're right up in the front line you would be very unlucky to get injured you know I mean look traveling around is dangerous because you know there are desperate people columns of vehicles, uh, traveling very fast, suddenly they encounter a roadblock, somebody will pull out into your lane coming your way (laughs) and, you know, and they're traveling, you know, they're not taking care. So there are a lot of road accidents. So road safety is a challenge. I mentioned fuel. That's a problem. Accommodation is very difficult if you're traveling through the country and you need to stop because you're not going to make it through in time for the curfew. You can find yourself... You know, there's no accommodation. The hotels are full of people, refugees moving on the move. And so you can end up having to sleep in the car. So, And it's been really cold too. So you don't really want to be sleeping in the car when it's minus seven degrees. You know, and it can all change pretty quickly. I have, We have experienced that before. And looking ahead, is there a point where it, it, it gets too much for even photojournalists or is, is this the kind of thing that you've that you will, do you see yourself staying? Uh, Yeah, so this is um, getting heavily into my fourth week here and we'll rotate out, I think, at the end of this week and I expect I'll be coming back regularly. Everybody has their own threshold and, you know, and it changes depending on how tired you are, who you're travelling with, what your um, personal circumstances are. You know, you have to just make a call on what you're prepared to do and what the story is and what the value of the story is. So at the moment, we've, we've done okay, you know, and I'll keep doing it. 
To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. Or sign up to Dispatches, our daily Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you found this show helpful, follow Ukraine, the latest on your podcast app. And if there's something we could do to make it even more useful, do let us know. You can email podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. Ukraine, the latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, And on Twitter, Sophie Coe.